Apologies. Oh, my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show named after a city in North Dakota. Every week we go over what happened and who is dead now. We ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the murders, the mob, the music, and more. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for Minnesota Public Radio, and I love TV. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and your classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. This week, we talked to poet and writer Hyde Erdrich. She grew up in North Dakota in the 70s and is Ojibwe, so we asked her to shed some light on the show's treatment of Native American characters and what rings true about the show's depiction of 1979 in the Upper Midwest. But first, let's talk about last night's episode where we backtrack and learn what's been going on with Ed and Peggy. That was the big question of last episode. Where's Ed? Where's Peggy? Where is Dodd? And we got some beautiful, hilarious answers in this episode. Peggy is on a roll. Kirsten Dunst is playing the role of a lifetime in Peggy Blomquist. We go deep down into her labyrinth of a basement where we find Peggy hallucinating on the steps. She has recast Dodd as the Lifespring seminar guru she's always dreamed of, who's preaching this self-actualization stuff to her. So Peggy is feeling very empowered, very fulfilled, and in comes Ed, who is just, you know, just escaped from the cops and is ready to hit the road. Well, they have to hit the road, but there's a little hiccup. They have Dodd now, who, despite his best efforts to pass himself off as just a just a concerned bystander. Ed like, doesn't buy it. Nope, you're Gerhardt. Uh, Slugs him, knocks him cold out, throws him in the trunk. Right. Super empowered Peggy and Ed hit the road with Dodd in their trunk, heading to the family cabin in South Dakota. Road trip, says Peggy cheerily. Peggy in the car was hysterical. She's talking about, you know, we just need to be, we can't think about it. We need to be our best selves. Talking about how great their relationship is going now. Meanwhile, Ed is just cycling over and over his head like, what are we going to do? We're going to call the Gerhards. We're going to try and bargain for our freedom. And beautifully, the split screens come in here because with that division right down the middle of the car, even though they're sitting together, the way they shot that shows how they're completely on different pages. They are not even functioning at the same level of consciousness at this point. But they're going to have to stay on the same page for the rest of the episode because they now arrive at a cabin owned by Ed's uncle. For me, this cabin kidnap tying up Dodd situation was one of the funniest things we've seen all season. There's so much physical comedy in what's happening with Dodd. He, the minute he is no longer in control, he turns from this like snarling attack dog into this sad puppy. Dodd gets the prod take two. He gets tied up in a ridiculous amount of rope and (laughs) he gets left alone with Peggy, which turns out to be like the worst torture possible. Meanwhile, Dent has slipped back into their house after Hank gets uh, towed off to the uh, to the hospital to have his head looked at and looks through Ed and Peggy's belongings to figure out where they're off to. Well, conveniently, there's a note left right on the freezer with Constance having shared a reservation letter for the Southnick Hotel in Sioux Falls, where she is, of course, delighted to be spending a night or two with Peggy. As we always knew was going to happen, all the action is now heading towards Sioux Falls. Hansi's on their trail and... While he's hunting them, he stops in this bar in Sioux Falls. And the minute he gets out of his car and sees this plaque on the wall of the bar, 
I knew that things were not going to go well. Yeah, he sees a plaque commemorating uh, the 1882 hanging of 22 Sioux Indians, as the plaque puts it. Didn't actually happen. That's a fictional incident as far as we can tell. But it certainly evokes uh, memories of an actual mass hanging in 1862 in Minnesota. Actually, the largest mass execution in American history, 38 Dakota, were killed after the Dakota War. And here... This plaque is on the wall, and then there's a pile of vomit right on the spot, which sums up exactly the kind of treatment that Hansi's going to get when he walks into this bar. Walks into the bar, tries to get some information from the bartender, gets no information from the bartender, just gets some disrespect. Well, and it's interesting here because not even his sterling war record can save him. That can't even get him any respect. I mean, that's the ultimate thing. He did three tours in Nam. He's got his Purple Heart. And they're still treating him like dirt. Yeah, the bartender doesn't even seem to believe that he has this war record. Clearly, the bartender has nowhere in his head room for the idea that a Native man could be contributing to America. He brings up the wounded knee incident, the second wounded knee incident when there was a conflict in 1973. So Hansi decides to wound some knees of his own when all these guys at the bar, they're pulling out every Native American stereotype you can think of. They're talking about Geronimo, teepees. They're hollering at him. Uh, Hansi just pulls his gun and shoots two of them right in the knee. Then heads back in, takes care of the bartender, who's called the cops. By the time the troopers show up, Hansi pulls out this brutal looking gun. I mean, it's something you don't want to be on the wrong end of. And these two troopers are immediately on the wrong end of it. So, again, we knew this was going to happen. We got this little tidbit in the last episode. You know, oh, Hansi was at a bar. He wounded two troopers. But seeing it actually go down and seeing how provoked Hansi was gives us a whole new layer to his character. So Hansi is now off, still looking for Ed and Peggy. Meanwhile, at the cabin, uh, Peggy is keeping a watchful eye over Dot in a hysterical manner. I mean, she's like force feeding him beans. She's telling him to mind his manners. She's pulling this really strange mothering housewife until she stabs him twice in the chest. Just like a little knife. He just bleeds like a little. Ed comes home, finds Peggy feeding beans to Dot, notices that Dot has been stabbed. Did you stab last? Yes. No. Yes. I mean, I had to teach him some manners is all if we're going to be spending time together. Ed has been running out every once in a while to the Rushmore grocery store to put some calls into the Gerhardt compound, which, as we know, no one at the Gerhardt compound is interested in answering. They don't really care what's happening to Dodd right now because Bear is in control. Um, But poor Ed is in that phone booth trying again and again to get through, and he just can't. And he kind of develops this little relationship with the uh, guy at the at the grocery store, has a little conversation, buys some groceries. We kind of meet this sympathetic older guy who's very friendly and runs the grocery store and has a run-in, ultimately, with Hansi Dent. The best part for me, though, with Ed in the grocery store is when he's picking up some groceries and he stares at the hamburger helper on the shelf. He thinks about it and I can't do it. And I was like, right, Hamburger Helper was the last meal they ate before he stabbed Rye in the garage with that trowel. And I was like, yeah, it probably is hard to uh, to buy Hamburger Helper after you've ground up a man. I, I believe, yeah, that Ed can make his way back to ground beef, this being the Midwest. But it, it'll, <laughs> it'll take him a while if he lives that long. So Hansi has made it to the Sioux Falls Hotel where Peggy and Constance were supposed to be at their seminar. Poor Constance is ready for an evening of romance. She has her candles lit. She's in her bathrobe. Got a little wine on ice. And Hansi's at the door. 
While Ed is away and Peggy's in charge of Dodd, she decides to give Constance a ring. She feels guilty about not making the seminar and Constance having to foot the bill for the hotel. So she calls Constance. Little does she know that Hansi is at the other end of the line as well. Yeah, so Hansi is basically holding Constance prisoner and forcing Constance, unbeknownst to Peggy, to try to get Peggy to tell Constance where Peggy is located. This was another beautiful use of split screen. This is a really long, tense, drawn-out conversation. Constance is trying every trick in the book to try and get Peggy to give away her location. And there are so many times where she's so close and then she snaps back like, oh, no, no, we are on the run. I guess I shouldn't say. And it just feels like this is Constance's last chance and she's wiggling and she's trying and it's just not working. Yeah, and the scene cuts away with with only a scant bit of detail having been learned about Ed and Peggy's location. She mentions a lake and a cabin and that's all they get yeah, before. The, the town of Vermilion. And so the scene ends very ominously with Dent stroking Constance's hair. I'll come over with the workbooks and you could, like I said, I made more progress in hours than ever. No, you're sweet, but like I said, we're hiding out, so I'll just, I'll call you as soon as it's over, okay? I'll give you a call. Yeah, but, okay, bye. I don't think we're going to see Constance again. Or maybe not in all of her regular pieces. Yeah, sadly, no. So Dent makes his way now to the Rushmore grocery store, where he has another tense confrontation with the clerk in a scene that uh, recalls No Country for Old Men, but ends a little bit better for the clerk than the comparable scene did in No Country for Old Men. But first, Ed uh, has come to his wit's end in trying to reach the Gerhards. They're not going to pick up. They don't care where Dot is. And conveniently, a newspaper blows across his path while he's in his phone booth. And this was a weird thing he pointed out, that the public's knowledge of the mob was huge. I mean, the headline is like, Mike Milligan, Kansas City mobster, hold up at the Pearl Hotel. Mob wars. (laughs) Those are all the details that Ed needs to get a hold of Milligan. Yeah, and Dent also on the front page of this paper, who is now wanted in connection with the bar shooting, and a little throwaway item about uh, satellite monitoring starting over Antarctica. Ed gives Milligan a ring, which we saw at the end of last episode, and they broker a deal. They're going to swap Dodd in exchange for Milligan taking care of the Blumquist's Gerhardt problem. If I kiss you when we meet, would that be inappropriate? What? I don't... Nothing, just... Well, it's been a day. But the fact is, I do. I do want them. They're supposed to meet the next morning. However, back at the cabin, Peggy has become so engrossed in this fake Ronald Reagan movie, uh, Operation Eagle's Nest, that she has completely fallen off the job of kidnapper and doesn't notice that Dodd has somehow slipped out of the ridiculous amount of rope he was tied up in. Home comes Ed to the cabin to find that Dodd is out of his ropes, that his wife is nowhere to be seen, and Ed, still being a little amateur at all this, just walks right in, gets noosed from behind by Dodd. This was so interesting to me because when he's in the phone booth earlier, we see this little game of hangman behind him um, that the letters are almost spelling out Sioux Falls but his head for a minute totally lines up with the hangman's noose and then in the next scene when he comes home 
dad does the exact same. He strings them up, but for a very different, more dangerous game of hangman. So now we have Ed dangling from the rafter, losing breath, getting lectured by Dodd on the... The the evils of women. The evils of women. And uh, Dodd is about to learn just how evil women can be, at least with respect to men who try to hang their husbands. Oh my God, Peggy gets him in the foot with this knife. This is like the bloodiest, most visceral thing. I mean, he's stabbed through the foot. He's pinned to the ground. There's blood everywhere. He slices his hand. Oh, he has to wedge his foot off the knife. I I couldn't watch at this point. Finally, Peggy whacks Dot on the back of the head. Dot is down. Ed and Peggy are trying to hogtie the the nearly unconscious Dot when in walks the cavalry. This time, not the cops. It's Hansi Dent. He's tracked them because, of course, he's tracked them. He's Hansi Dent. The minute he gets in, Dodd starts spewing the same kind of hate language that we saw the guys in the bar saying to Hansi earlier. So Hansi shocks everyone. I'm sure everyone was freaking out at this point. I was for sure. And shoots Dodd through the head. Ed and Peggy don't know quite how to react to this. And I didn't know how to react to this. This was ridiculous. They, I mean, I don't understand what's going on, where Hansi's allegiances are. And he makes a crazy request. He wants a haircut. <laughs> Seemingly knowing that Peggy works at a hair salon. Well, he did stalk her there a couple times. So she know- he knows that uh, she's got the dazzle knowledge. Yes. And uh, Hansi says he's been thinking about uh, cutting his hair a little shorter. Whether this symbolically marks his his desire to escape the stereotype of being the Indian in town or whether he's trying to hide from people who now know who he looks like. The point is he wants a trim and Peggy nervously agrees to give it to him. Right as they look out the window, just as Hansi's about to get the haircut of a lifetime, Lou and Hank have finally arrived. Hank presumably has recovered from his head injury. Hank looking strong. (laughs) In time for them to find the Blumquist cabin. Hansi, of course, has that special sense. He sees them out the window. And before Peggy can snip a single hair in his head, gets up, he's shooting, he fends them off. And while he's distracted, Peggy, who seems to have been wavering as to whether she wants to cut Hansi's hair or stab him in the back, decides on the latter jumps over, stabs him in the back. So once again, we have a character taken down by a stab between the shoulder blades with an implement that wasn't really meant to be stabbing someone between the shoulder blades. Oof. And it seems that Hansi's magic has kind of run out at this point because he actually runs out of bullets when he tries to shoot Ed. Uh, And so he just bolts out the door before Hank and Lou can bust in. And then Hank and Lou bust in to find Ed and Peggy once again trapped by the cops, hands in the air. End of episode. Let's talk about what's going on with Peggy in this episode, because she has really come into her own. She is self-actualized, and she is spouting some super confident mumbo-jumbo without even going to the seminar. By the time, one of the reasons that Constance has a hard time getting Peggy's location is that Constance is trying to offer Peggy these books. we got these great books. I've made more progress, says Constance, today than in all the previous time. Let me send these books to you. And Peggy is feeling good. She's like, oh, I can get the books later. Peggy feels like she has moved from thought, from idea to action, that she is an actualized woman now. What's going on with her hallucination, though? Like, is she really this ill or is it? You know, the stress of having three people murdered in your basement on top of all the other bodies she's encountered. I mean, what did you think from that intense hallucination? Could be a combination of those things. I think I still feel like the idea of Peggy being mentally ill is being a little bit oversold. I think that, you know, there are... 
the idea of a hallucination like this is a pretty common technique in a lot of films and movies. And I don't think it necessarily indicates that Peggy is slipping. It might just indicate that she's stressed. She's really thinking about what it means to move her life forward. And again, we get this theme of characters who think that it's going to be different for them. That if I murder someone, it'll change my life. It'll fix my relationship. It'll make me an actualized woman. Just kind of like Jerry Lundegaard was thinking he could get his life back on track with just this one little scam. But of course, it always goes terribly wrong. And well, we'll see how it turns out for Peggy and Ed. I got to check in quick on the aliens because I'm never going to give up on the aliens. In the beginning, as we're watching all of the action flow in and out of the Blumquist house, we have this really severe uh, angle from above, almost like somebody's watching. We all, it's like a UFO point of view. And the idea of surveillance and paranoia and everything that comes with that has been throughout this whole season. But I, I did like these really severe above shots that were happening at the beginning. Yeah, and sort of detaches you from the action, sort of makes you see things more abstractly. Also, things were super tense in the bar, so I didn't catch this the first time. But there are these strange symbols behind the bartender's head up along the wall that look very similar to what we were seeing in Hank's house. Yes, alchemy, alchemist symbols commonly associated with UFOs. This is a real, a real tiny detail, but yeah, could be very, very telling given that there were no other explicit references to aliens in this episode. We don't learn any more about Hank's obsession. No one sees an alien. With just a couple episodes to go, what, uh, where could the alien plot go, if anywhere? Well, apparently there's an alien bar in Sioux Falls, but yeah, that, that was a weird thing for me. I don't know if we'll get any any good answers. Of all the places to be portrayed in this show and not actually exist, the alien bar in Sioux Falls <laughs> maybe would be the one I'd be most disappointed I couldn't visit, although it looks like the people there are pretty nasty, yeah, so I maybe I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be so sad. The title of this episode was Lop Lop which a lop-lop is this strange fictional bird that appeared a lot of in these um, Max Ernst paintings. And books. And books. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of played the role of this alter ego of Max Ernst, kind of this narrator, kind of this observer character. And my theory is that the title of the episode refers to Hansi Dent, who gets called a shitbird, and, and, which is a military-associated insult for someone who's totally useless by the people. So this insult comes at uh, Hansi from the guys who are taunting him outside the bar. And this is also the episode where he sort of becomes detached from the loyalties we thought he had. Up until now, he's been really loyal to Dodd and the Gerhards generally. And now, clearly, he's turned on Dodd. He seems to be loyal to no one but himself at this point. It sort of becomes this detached almost observer character who now knows so much about what's going on with all the other characters and may or may not act on that information. Well, and in the theme of the the existentialist and the surrealist and these literary references that we've been getting all season, I liked when Peggy was trying to turn on the TV and it's mostly static, but then this giant cockroach appears. Metamorphosis. I like, exactly. I was like, oh, Kafka much? Like, there have been a lot of transformations on this show. Uh, maybe just a nod, but I thought it was fun. So then eventually she does get the TV to work and she ends up watching this Reagan movie, which is there's really a lot of attention given to this movie. Yeah, And presumably it's a it's a resistance couple during World War Two hiding in a bunker. That's kind of what I was getting um, being pursued by a Nazi. And Peggy is so taken with this romanticized idea of this trapped couple, the world against the couple, you know, them doing whatever they can to survive. I mean, this is clearly how she sees 
her and Ed, even though it was just the stupid car accident that started it all. Yeah, and here we have Reagan coming to the rescue in the movie, shooting this Nazi in the back and saving the couple. But, of course, the irony, the multiple ironies going on here is that, well, Peggy is so entranced, she's distracted from the actual danger unfolding just over to her right as Dodd is getting out from the ropes. And then, of course, as you pointed out, in the movie itself, within the frame now of the movie, after Reagan and the couple run out, the Nazi... Gets back up. Hmm. That for me, I mean, I don't think Dodd is going to be getting back up anytime soon. We saw quite a bit of his brains last night. But uh, to me, that was the evil isn't done yet. Yeah. And it also, this brings you back to the historical time frame where you're having Reagan rising to power with this rhetoric of hope and renewal. And we seem to be getting a not very subtle suggestion here that uh, Reagan's rhetoric is going to prove to be empty. I want to talk for a minute about all the ropes that they had on Dodd. I mean, they tied him up to a ridiculous degree. I mean, it was almost cartoonish how many ropes they had on him. And to me, this was harkening back to something I was sort of obsessed with earlier, was, which was why Lou was constantly tying knots. And the fact that Dodd manages to get out of the knots that Ed ties, to me, was like another dig at his masculinity and his he's failing as a man. Um, we have Lou, who's the master of everything, who's constantly practicing knots. And we have Ed, who it doesn't, have, doesn't matter how much rope he has, he still can't get the job done right. Well, and the funny thing is that when we first see Dodd in this episode, he's very efficiently and effectively tied up by Peggy yeah. in the basement <laughs> using a fairly minimal arrangement. There are just a few ropes and Dodd is going nowhere. But then when Peggy and Ed do the job together and get Dodd in the cabin, you're right, it's, it's comical. It's almost like this like Warner Brothers cartoon with all these ropes wrapped around him. And you look at that and you're like... That doesn't look like a job done by people who really know how to tie someone up. We have to talk about Hansi. To me, this started as Peggy's episode, but it ended as Hansi's episode. I mean, we spent a lot of time with him. We had a lot of developments. Uh, and I just, I'm wondering, I always kind of thought, I wasn't sure about his allegiances. I mean, he was working with Dodd. He might have been betraying the other Gerhards. It was unclear. But in this, I mean... He's struck out on his own. He's doing his own thing now. This theory is probably too crazy, but when Dodd calls Hansi a half-breed and the fact that the Gerhards took him in, I was like, hmm, is he actually one of the Gerhardt brothers? Could be. That, Could it, be too far. No, well, that's... We, we, that, that's uh, we do fair have, speculation. We do have to talk about the haircut thing, though. Uh, while Dodd is spewing his hate about women, he's, you know... Kublai Khan, Napoleon, Samson, they were all brought down by the power of women. It's interesting that he mentioned Samson. Samson, of course, is the the biblical story, Samson and Delilah. Um, When Delilah cuts Samson's hair off, he loses his power. And then we have Hansi showing up and asking Peggy to cut his hair. It's loaded both because, uh, you know, long hair was this traditional and stereotypical thing for Native Americans at the time. So him wanting to cut his hair is very meaningful on that front. But also it's got to be coming so closely to the to the Samson reference has to be tied up in that. He doesn't end up with a very strong position necessarily, given that he's been stabbed in the back and he's run out of bullets and he's run out presumably to you know hide and heal up. But he does keep his hair and he, he does. does keep his life and he does keep, as I mentioned earlier, all the information in his head about Ed, Peggy, the cops, the Gerhards, 
Kansas City. He'll have a lot of leverage in coming episodes, whatever he decides to do with it. They get very close in on Peggy's scissors, and she doesn't cut a single hair on his head. He leaves with his hair intact. So, I don't know. Hyde Erdrich is a poet, writer, and filmmaker who grew up in North Dakota and now lives in Minnesota. She is Ojibwe, and we asked her to stop by to talk about the issue of race on Fargo and how the show captures the region. Hyde, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So the season is set in 1979, and it has a very white portrayal of the Midwest, uh, with a few exceptions. And uh, what do you think about the character of Hansi Dent, played by Zahn McLaren? You know, it's an interesting character to begin with. He's very silent, as would be typical of uh, an Indian with quotes around it of the era. To me, it's really fascinating to see the wardrobe of 1979 because that was a very, you know, that was the time I was a young teenager. And that's spot on. That's what guys I knew, uh, including Ojibwe and Dakota guys. That's what they wore. You know, it was the look. Uh, and we've got a little bit of Hansi's past, but basically, yeah, we've seen him as like an Indian tracker who eats rabbit hearts raw. I mean, does it feel a little, like overly simplistic for this character? Well, yeah, to the for the most part, even just the mystery around who he is, he's just silently there. He's just silently the muscle, and he has you know somewhat supernatural powers. He can grab a white rabbit in the snow. You know, <laughs> where did that white rabbit come from? I don't think it was a snowshoe hair. You know, and and he so he does have some qualities that are you know pretty much played a stereotype. And and his silence. It took a long time for him to say anything. It was interesting, but. He also has some characteristics that I think are a little bit different from what one would expect. What are those? Well, the fact that he was in Vietnam, and there's a brief reference to how he was pulled out as the as the Indian, tell, send the Indian in, send him into the tunnels is the way I remember that bit, uh, shows a little bit about what happened to him. And you begin to think, you know, maybe the relationship between these Vietnam vets is part of the the narrative, the sub-narrative, too. How realistic is the Hanzi storyline that we've seen little glimpses of? I mean, we saw him in a reservation school, and then we got this idea that he was then taken in by the Gerhards, but sort of kept separate, never really accepted as a son. I mean, is that something... I know there were many issues surrounding adoption and all of that at the time. What does this storyline seem like to you? Well, Hansi's storyline seems like there's a generation skip right there. Uh, this, the schoolhouse he's in looks like the schoolhouse maybe his his grandparents would have been in or his parents even. And it's like a you know one-room schoolhouse with wooden chairs. And uh, he might have been in a residential school at that point. The residential schools would have been 1950s through 1960s buildings at that point because uh, I know all the residential schools my parents taught at one. So uh, that's, that's where he would have been if he was from the region. There's some, maybe he's from Winnipeg. You know, it's not quite clear. Maybe he's from further out west yeah so i don't know he may have been taken in he may have been like an indentured servant which would have happened in the uh, years before when people fostered native kids just basically to get labor around the farm Um, but that really was like i said a generation before for the most part how he got to be with them i don't know it's not impossible why is another question i feel like when we see native american characters on tv they're playing Indians. They're playing these stereotypes. What do you think about the portrayal of these characters in general in pop culture? 
Well, in pop culture, there's really very little we get to do. Uh, that The actor, Zan McLaren, has had some pretty good roles and been able to play contemporary you know, present-day characters. But uh, think of the character that Wilma Pelly plays as the housekeeper, the sort of drudge in the background in Fargo, uh, this Indian woman who's never even in focus. She's always just working away constantly in the background. And that seems to me to be a limited role for a Native woman. So in general, I think that's what we get. We get this sort of warrior with supernatural powers for men, and we get this drudge worker for women. And you know, my hopes are that this is going to move in a different direction because the characters seem like a little bit more aware of themselves racially in America than I would even think they would have been in 1979 in the upper Midwest. So speaking of that historical context, actually, let's let's go ahead and back it up to that time. And I wonder if you could help give our listeners a little bit of historical perspective on the American Indian movement and other things that were happening in Native communities in the area in that era. Well, I was living in Wapton, North Dakota, which is situated between the Sisseton Wapton Dakota Oyate, the reservation Sisseton at Lake Traverse. And uh, I was aware of Wounded Knee, which gets mentioned, uh, the second Wounded Knee, the occupation by the American Indian Movement. So those things were happening just prior to this 1979 period. There's a mention of the courthouse in Fargo. That's where the first Leonard Peltier trial took place. So all those places are sort of loaded for a Native audience and people who might be aware of what happened with race relations in the upper Midwest right around that time. There was an occupation at Red Lake as well, armed occupations. So there was some tension the state trooper from Laverne mentions, you know, ever since Wounded Nice, who falls is on alert and so forth. So you get a sense that the region has some understanding that there's civil and racial unrest even in the upper Midwest. So we've heard a character, Mike Milligan, refer to manifest destiny, suggesting that some whites in the upper Midwest might have conveniently short memories when it comes to the history of this land. Do you think that's true? Well, that seems very clear because the notion of the Gerhards coming in and just taking this land and taking control of it and and working all the the distribution of all of the illegal activities, it, it just doesn't even mention who might have been there when their ancestors arrived. Uh, but it also is odd because there's a moment when there's some family photos of the Gerhards, some sepia tones, and there's a man with a headdress in there. I don't know if uh, Charlie Gerhardt's Indian or not. Is really? He? Yeah. Could, do you think he is? I mean, does it look like Bear was married to a Native woman, had this child? And that's that's been my question all along. There's some little indicators. He wears his hair a little longer, but it's the 70s. You know, he seems to be the only one who actually glances at the woman working, the the housekeeper. That's interesting. I mean, there's definitely some tension surrounding Bear's wife. I mean, we had that showdown between the brothers where Dodd is saying some pretty crude things about her, but we haven't seen her. And yet, yeah, she is kind of this big question. So the two major locations on the show so far are Fargo, North Dakota, and Laverne, Minnesota. And you clearly have history in both those states, having grown up in North Dakota and now living in Minnesota. What do you think of the vision of the Midwest being presented in the show overall? You know, the idea that we don't have a lot to say, you know, it's okay then, okay then, okay (laughs) then, uh, that always has bothered me a little bit. Uh, even since the original Fargo. The fact that it's not in Fargo is always really disturbing to North Dakotans. <laughs> it's called Fargo, but most of it doesn't take place in Fargo, and the Fargo that we see is is not 
a Fargo we recognize with, you know, spruce trees and hills. <laughs> so, so there's that. Um, I think that it, it, it shows some of the reserve that's really uh, part of Midwest character, the reserve that allows people to have, you know, a standoff, an armed standoff, and let people go about their business and expect them to do the right thing, get out of town. And it doesn't always end in gunfire for the non-criminals. You know, that that was interesting to me. I feel like there's still some of that. We all have an expectation things are going to go okay, or we did until recently. What's happened on the show that's felt to you very true to your experience, something that you've seen is like, oh, they nailed it there. On the other hand, maybe something you've seen that you've thought just felt very wrong or off tone. You've talked about a couple of examples. Are there any more? Well, I was a teenager in 1979, and I had just left North Dakota for the first time. So when I look at that, that's the fashion is just on fleek, as they say today. But at the time, they would have said, oh, that's nice. You know, <laughs> I just love those you know, high-waisted pants and the halter top and everything about uh, the characters, the female characters, how they, the choices that they make, even the male characters, you know, really, you know, somebody in that suit that those guys show up in from Kansas City, we would have known that those guys were not from Fargo. You know, you just would have known. And the cars, amazing to me. Love seeing all those cars from the 70s and even from the 60s. That was the obsession of every small town human teenager in North Dakota was what cars everybody was driving. But one thing that's really maybe a little bit along the lines of personal experience were is the seminar that Peggy wants to go to. And I remember the ladies who wanted to investigate those seminars and how radical that was and how, you know, how they you know, might have run off with some somebody at some sort of S-type seminar. But those things were really happening. And that, that really amazed me that somebody f- pulled that detail out. Did you ever go to any of them? No, I was too young to go, but I do remember a couple people's moms who went to these, you know, self-empowerment seminars and everything changed at home after that. We did a lot more dishes. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on state lines in Fargo, North Dakota versus Minnesota versus South Dakota. As someone who's lived in both places, do you think those tensions are real or the competitiveness between the states? Yeah, I think definitely there's, you know... I think it still exists, all those jokes that we had growing up. It's so windy in North Dakota because Minnesota sucks, you know, <laughs> or um, because Montana blows. They're you know? <laughs> just rude. But <laughs> these are the things that North Dakota says to sort of support itself. But, yeah, I think some of those things were definitely going on. And um, But to me, the fact that the Fargo cop seems the lamest is, is really uh, – that's curious to me. I, I just – I remember – Seeing the FBI in Fargo, seeing the state troopers, and I and uh, everybody being really afraid of them, and feeling that they were really soldier-like, you know, a very different attitude toward police. And also, you know, I love the little note at the beginning that these these events are real. And I think if if that many people had died anywhere in North Dakota, we'd all be still standing around looking at the decaying crime scene. You know, <laughs> it would still be news. <laughs> Do you remember kind of what was in the news at that time? What would have been consuming your minds? I know you were a teenager, so you may or may not have been really tied into that. But Yeah, I remember, you know, there was still a lot of talk about uh, the Wounded Knee, Leonard Peltier. But there was also a lot of talk about Jimmy Carter and 
what we were going to do about energy, uh, what the farm bills were doing to people. That was a huge, a huge part of our discussion. You know, what was going to happen to these farmers? And and you know, and a few years later, in the early '80s, there were all these failures of farms. So there was a lot of fear of things just really going down the tubes. And there was a lot of talk about what what what's going to happen with these Vietnam vets. What a little edginess about how many people came back to these rural communities who were really broken and there was no conversation about how they were going to be helped, but especially on reservations. There were a lot of veterans who came back who were really um, in need of help and there was nothing for people. What do you make of, and this is going way back to episode one, the opening with the fake Reagan film, which they call The Massacre at Sioux Falls, and there's that really meta exchange between this faux director and the guy playing, you know, an Indian. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think everyone's still scratching their heads over what that was, but what do you think? Well, you know, there's there are surreal mo- moments in this show. You know, there's one where Ed and Peggy are not moving their mouths, but they're talking to each other on the bus. You know, there's a, a UFO sighting. And so to begin with this surreal moment of this uh, director uh, having this conversation with this this. Indian with quotes actor in a war bonnet on the scene of a battle where all the soldiers are lying dead is it's pretty pretty interesting but it set for me the expectation that the role of the Indian the quote unquote Indian would be interrogated in the film and instead we get you know another surreal moment he goes out and he hunts this white rabbit and brings it home and eats its innards raw and as if he does this all the time because nobody mentions anything while he's doing it in the kitchen either so yeah, I don't know. I I I will admit to being quite baffled by a lot going on in here and I expect us to be continually baffled and I don't expect it to be sewn up in any way. I think a lot of it's tone poem. It was recently announced that there will be a season 3 of Fargo. And as we've seen, Noah Hawley isn't afraid to jump like time and place or 36 years. So basically this next season could happen anytime anywhere. If you got to pick where season three would be and what it would be about. And I know I haven't given you time to think about this. What would you say? Well, that's hard because 1979 was perfect for me. I really, I resonates with me completely. Uh, so I guess I would love to see something happening in with a Minneapolis connection, with an actual Minneapolis connection about, you know, the highways going through north side maybe. I'd love that if there was some boxing because boxing involved all races in the upper Midwest and it was a huge part of, you know, I think we're going back to the 70s that way, but maybe the 60s or the 50s even. Thanks so much for coming in. You're so welcome. What do you think is going to happen next week? Lou and Hank have Peggy and Ed again, but they've had them and lost them a couple times so far. I mean, everybody is converging on Sioux Falls really quickly. And we know that the next morning, Ed and Peggy have an appointment with Mike Milligan. So Mike Milligan is on his way to Sioux Falls, expecting to have Dodd handed over to him. And we saw in the scenes for next time that they're going to try and go through with that meeting. Uh, They're dragging Ed to the motor lodge that he told Milligan to meet him at. So is this hotel where the shooting is going to be at? I thought it was uh, when Ed is describing the hotel to Mike Milligan on the phone. He says, oh, you know, it's the it's the one just off the highway. Two story. And to me, that phrase calls back the line that we've known all along is happening. Sioux Fall bodies stacked up to the second story. Hmm. Yeah, I had thought maybe we'd get a spectacular set piece with Carnage at the Life Spring Seminar. 
But given that it now seems that Constance, well, her life has seemingly sprung, that uh, we, we may never make it to that Life Spring seminar in the hotel, maybe where the showdown happens. Which, speaking of all these bodies and burials and funerals, shout out to Aaron Brown up on the Iron Range in Minnesota who pointed out the near impossibility of being able to dig a grave in the ground in the winter in the upper Midwest. That's basically cement. You're not going to be able to dig into that frozen earth. Ah Geez is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jake Abler, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson. We're live tweeting the episodes on Twitter at Ah Geez Podcast. That's A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Okay, Dan. Bye now.